Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Okay, so the question we're looking at today is, what does the Bible have to say about women in particular? Are men and women equal in the eyes of God according to Scripture? This is from a book of letters children wrote to God. One little girl wrote this, Dear God, are boys better than girls? I mean, I know you are one, but please try to be fair. You know, one of the teachings of Jesus is that God is spirit. Well, that means God does not have a body, which means God does not have sexual organs, which means God does not have testosterone. God does not have estrogen. God does not shave, which means God transcends gender, which means, according to Genesis, quite uniquely in the ancient world, men do not bear or reflect the image of God any more than women do, which means you may have to rethink how you think about women or about men or about God. Now, all that matters because we're in a series called Misunderstanding, Exploring honestly key questions and misunderstandings that people in our culture have about Christianity. And one of these questions is whether or not the Bible is sexist. And this is not an abstract theological question. Now, I want us to keep in mind during this message the status and plight of women around our world today. Back in 1990, Amartya Sen wrote a very influential essay titled, More Than 100 Million Women Are Missing. And it was all about gender imbalance in China, India, and elsewhere. Well, 20 years later, it was even worse. Mara Havestendahl published Unnatural Selection, Choosing Boys Over Girls and the Consequences of a World Full of Men. And she noted that Asia alone has an imbalance of 163 million males over females. And I want you to listen to these sad truths. Once a fetus has been identified as female, it is much more likely to be unwanted, aborted, left, exposed, or abandoned. Rich families cannot find brides for their sons, so poor families are more likely to sell their daughters, which leads to sex trafficking. Many people have heard about the Me Too movement in our society or about bro culture dynamics that are demeaning to women. But few are aware that according to the World Health Organization, one in three women around the world will experience physical or sexual violence. One in three. According to UNESCO, one in four girls in developing countries will not be able to complete even a primary education. So we need to talk about this. You know, maybe you're from a secular background mostly, and you read the Bible and there's polygamy in there and patriarchal systems and statements about husbands ruling over wives. And you wonder, how could a modern, thoughtful person honor such a book? Or maybe you're from a church background that taught that women were supposed to play a majorly subservient role. Well, at Hill Country Bible Church, we believe as a church in a thoughtful, informed faith that values the distinctiveness of men and women. So we do have different roles. 
But we also believe the Bible rightly understood affirms an equal egalitarian community where men and women serve and partner together on the basis of giftedness and not some kind of gender hierarchy. What we're basically exploring this morning is what Paul meant when he said this. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the message we're going to talk about today. What does Paul mean by that? That we're all one in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to go straight to one of the passages most frequently cited as restricting women's roles. It was written by the Apostle Paul, and it's kind of a head-scratcher to many, okay? What I'm going to do is I'll read the entire passage and then comment on it. And then we'll talk about the whole sweep of gender teaching in the Bible and its impact on ancient history. And finally, we'll think about what that means for you and for me and for our sons and daughters. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And let me warn you, this passage was written 2,000 years ago to a culture very different than ours. So it's possible one or two parts might seem a little obscure. But here's what Paul writes. He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Is everything clear so far? Yeah, sure it is. Let's go on. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, here we go. <laughs> a lot, obviously, of what Paul writes here is relating to a particular cultural situation a long time ago that we don't know everything about. But I want to make a few key observations from this passage and the Bible as a whole this morning. First of all, in this passage, the Bible affirms public ministry for women. In verse 5, Paul expressly talks about women praying and prophesying before the entire congregation. And to prophesy in that context meant to deliver God's message to the congregation. Now, there may be distinctives between teaching or preaching and prophesying, but clearly the women are proclaiming publicly some sort of truth from God here. 
And I know some argue that women should only do this for other women, but it's very clear from the context here, at least, especially when Paul is talking about the veil stuff, that he's endorsing women speaking to an audience of both men and women. And this is the most striking teaching of this text. I mean, it's quite a radical departure from the history of Israel. You know, in Paul's time, in order to form a synagogue, 10 men had to be present. A woman didn't even count as one of those 10. Now in Israel, of course, as in all cultures, there were a variety of thoughts about gender. But one ancient rabbinic saying went like this. Better the Torah should be burned than taught to a woman. Now that's pretty extreme, isn't it? But you see, Paul is saying, this is a new day. Now teaching and learning is to include women as well as men, both in speaking and listening. Now you have to ask, how did that idea come about? Well, I'll give you a little hint. It started with the greatest champion of women in all of history, Jesus. Some of you may have heard the story of Mary and Martha where Martha's busy in the kitchen and complains to Jesus that Mary is not helping her. Martha, Martha, Jesus replied. (laughs) And by the way, if Jesus says your name twice, you're probably in trouble. Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Okay, what had Mary chosen? Well, the story says Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now, I know a lot of people look at this story and think it's just about being really busy like Martha or being relaxed and contemplative like Mary. But a first century reader would not have understood this story that way. Jesus does not commend Martha, who is doing what women stereotypically did in that day, working in the kitchen. Instead, he commends Mary, who is doing what men stereotypically do, sitting at the feet of a rabbi. And by the way, there is no record of a rabbi ever choosing a woman to be a disciple until this story, until Jesus. Mary sat at his feet, it said. Now that saying was a Hebrew expression that meant she was being a disciple of his. You know, there's a lot about the way Jesus dealt with and treated women that challenged his culture very deeply. Jesus broke open the door for women like no one else in history. You know, there's an old story about a CEO traveling with his wife and, and they stop to get gas and he notices her talking to the service station attendant. Well, later on in the car, he asked her why and it turns out she knew that service station attendant. Turns out she used to date that service station attendant. Well, the CEO was feeling pretty smug at that point and said, I bet I know what you were thinking. You were thinking you're so glad you married me, a CEO and not that service station attendant. And she said, no, I was thinking that if I had married him, he would be a CEO and you would be a service station attendant. Of course, the problem with that story is, why can't she be the CEO? Or better, why can't we all just find dignity in our personhood and not have our identity or value wrapped up in our work or a spouse or a title? Paul teaches that now the ministry of women is to be honored in the church. Now, sometimes people will challenge this passage in Corinthians and point to 1 Timothy 2.12, where Paul says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. 
All right, there's a lot that could be said about that passage, but this morning I'm just going to be able to give you the Cliff Notes version here. In the Greek, the terms teach and authority are connected, okay? And the term men refers to either a woman's husband or the elders of the church. So what Paul is doing here is he's confronting women who are teaching authoritatively in a way that either contradicts or usurps her husband or the church leadership. Do you see how different that is? Like Paul is not contradicting what he said about women speaking to the church in 1 Corinthians. And as I said earlier, just because men and women are equal and both are permitted to teach doesn't mean that God doesn't have distinct roles for men and women. He does. For example, the Bible teaches that men should fill the role of elders in a church. But that in no way speaks of inequality or inability. And one final point here. If you know church history, you know that the household formed the basic infrastructure of the early church. For several centuries, they didn't have buildings like we do today. But what you may not know is roughly half of the households that Paul mentions in the New Testament are headed by women. I mean, that was a staggering percentage in the ancient world. That means that women's influence in the early church was disproportionately high. And all of this flowed out of the way Jesus treated and honored women. So if you're a woman and a follower of Jesus, find out how God has gifted you. Teaching, leadership, administration, evangelism, encouragement. Develop that gift and use that gift. The world needs you. The church needs you. Hill County Bible Church Georgetown needs you. And we will cheer you on. So that's the first observation. Second, women and men are equally called and mutually interdependent. Now, one of the key words in this passage of 1 Corinthians 11 is that word head. In Greek, it's the word kephale. Now, in English, when we hear the word head used metaphorically, we generally think about the boss, right? The person in charge, whoever is the head. So it sounds like Paul is saying the man, if he's the head, is the boss of the woman. But it turns out there's a big question as to whether or not in the ancient Greek language, that little word kephale, when used as a metaphor, was ever used to mean the boss or person in charge. If kephale was used as a metaphor, it was much more often used to describe the source of something. Like we talk about the headwaters of a river. And if that's the case, Paul is saying that in Jesus' incarnation, Christ came from God, and Adam was created by Christ, and the woman came from the side of the body of man. Now, there's a lot of scholarly debate about this. And if you want to look it up, there are tons of articles and books about the ancient uses of kephale. Now, sometimes people will argue that because Genesis says the man was made first and woman comes from his side, it implies that man is superior. Like he was made first, he comes first. Well, the problem with this is the argument for order can work both ways. I mean, you could also say that God made the animals first and then he made man. And the man was a big improvement on the animals. And then God said, I'm through warming up. And he made Eve, like he saved the best for last. See, the argument for order cuts either way. What the text does say, which is really unique in the ancient world, is this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. 
male and female, he created them. Now, the notion of humans being made in the image of God, that was not unique to Israel in the ancient world. But what was revolutionary in Genesis and Israel was that the image of God is universal. The author deliberately says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The text clearly emphasizes that God made man and woman in his image and gave them both the mandate to rule and steward his earth. Like there's no hint of any division of responsibilities. Women, let there be no doubt about your worth in the eyes of God. You're made in God's image. You're made to exercise dominion, not to rule over men and not to be ruled by men, but for all of us to steward God's creation. Okay, third, women and men are to treat one another with great dignity. Jesus's community ought to be a place where women and men find respect and honor. In verse seven, Paul says, woman is the glory, the reflection, if you will, of man. Okay, people sometimes wonder, does that mean she is lower than him? That doesn't mean that. Interestingly enough, that same expression is used in the Old Testament, for example, to say that King Saul is the glory of Israel. Now that didn't diminish Saul. It was a tribute of great honor to Saul. Likewise, in verse nine, Paul says, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And people sometimes wonder, does that mean the woman has a lower status or function than the man? No, Paul here is referring back to Genesis 2, where God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper, some versions say a helpmate, suitable for him. You know, when I was younger, I thought that word helper meant a gopher or a junior assistant, somebody lower down on the org chart. The problem with that idea, though, is that the word helper in the Old Testament is most often used to refer to. To God. For example, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. He's our helper and shield. It's that exact same word. Clearly, the idea is not that God is lower on the org chart. In fact, the lower on the org chart dynamic comes into play in a really interesting way. In Genesis 3, the man and the woman disobey God, and then sin enters into human life. Well, this devastates their relationship with God, their relationship with each other, and their relationship with all of creation. And one aspect of that brokenness is pronounced to the woman as part of the curse. God says to her, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I don't know about you, but I've often heard this taught as if it were God's original intent for human beings. He will rule over you. It was not. It was part of the curse, people. It was part of what happened because of the fall, like pain in childbirth and painful toil and thorns and thistles and laboring by the sweat of your brow and death itself. I mean, this verse has been misused and taken out of context way too often. 
And here's another verse that has been abused at wedding after wedding. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, let me just say here, that is absolutely true. Wives, you are to submit yourselves to your husbands. But it cuts both ways. You see, the verse right before this one, Ephesians 5.21, says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Same context, talking to husbands and wives, submit to one another. See, there's mutual submission in marriage. We do have different roles, but husbands and wives should work together. All right, here's another example. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing about marriage and sex, and he says this, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Okay, in the ancient world, no surprise there. All the husbands would be nodding at their wives at this point in the letter when it's being read in church. I mean, in that culture, a woman always belonged to somebody. So no big surprise. But Paul's next sentence is the one that would have shocked the ancient world. This is what he says. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you kidding me? At this point, all the wives explode into applause. And the husbands are thinking, my wife has authority over my body? Like, what's the point of being a husband then? Well, the point is that in Christ and in the church, we no longer live for ourselves. We live for one another. So in Corinth, Paul goes into this long discussion about veils and head coverings that seems quite odd to us. But Corinth was a city known for its blatant sexuality. They worshiped the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And temple prostitution was a major part of the history of that city. And a shaved or unveiled head was one of the ways temple prostitutes were identified. You see, most likely, these instructions about veils and head coverings come from Paul's desire that the Christian community be distinguished from the promiscuity and sexual practices associated with goddess worship in Corinth. It doesn't mean all women in all cultures should wear head coverings or all men should not have long hair. In fact, if you know your Bible, in the Old Testament, what was the sign of Samson's obedience to God? Long hair. Paul's writing for a particular culture. And let me say one last word about this text. Sometimes in our English Bibles, there can be translation issues that skew our thinking. So it's a good idea to check out multiple translations. For example, here's 1 Corinthians 11.10, word for word from the Greek. Because of this, the woman ought to have authority upon the head because of the angels. Okay, that's literally word for word from the Greek text, okay? Now, listen to a version of the Bible called the Living Letters. It says, so a woman should wear a head covering upon her head as a sign that she is under a man's authority, a fact for all the angels to notice and rejoice in. Okay, does that look a little different from the literal rendering? Yeah. See, it's a good idea to check out multiple translations. Paul's point about the veils is not that a woman is under a man's authority. It's about the angels here. Couldn't be clearer. But this just shows you how our traditions can skew 
our translations. And I think it's time for the church to honor and revere all human beings, regardless of gender. I heard about a Sunday school class where one of the boys said, there are no girl heroes in the Bible. <laughs> are you kidding me? From Eve, the mother of all humanity, to Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, to Deborah, the warrior judge, the leader of all of Israel, to Esther, who courageously risked her life to save her people. The whole nation of Israel was saved by her. To Ruth, Naomi, and Huldah, the prophet, to Miriam, to Tamar, to Mary, the mother of Jesus, to that group of women who alone had the courage to stay with Jesus through the crucifixion and were the first witnesses of the resurrection, to Phoebe, the deacon who was charged to read and likely explain the hard parts of the book of Romans, to Priscilla, the teacher, to Junia, the prophet, to Lydia, the businesswoman. Anybody who thinks the Bible has no women heroes hasn't been reading the Bible. So let's teach our children that God made women and men alike to serve in their giftedness with humility and joy, to live heroically with courage and faith, to love one another with servanthood and respect. I mean, let's be a community where we honor marriage, where spouses are devoted to sexual faithfulness and integrity and mutual submission. Let's be a community where we honor singleness, because contributing as a follower of Jesus is more important than conforming to social norms about you got to get married. Let's be a community that prays and works for the protection and elevation of women in the home, in education, in the workplace, where we live, and all around the world. Let's do that. Now, please don't get me wrong this morning. I do believe God has specific roles and purposes that are distinct for men and women. But that's another conversation for another time. And I realize I've left a lot of questions on the table. But this message is simply to dispel some of the myths people have believed about Christianity being anti-women. Now, on the contrary, Jesus, his teachings, and the teachings of his followers have done more to liberate women than any other force in history. So if you're a man, I charge you, cheer on the women in your life. Fight for the women in your life. Your mom, your wife, your daughter, your sister, your friend. And pray for God to use them to their full potential. Be the kind of man that any woman can trust and rely on. And if you're a woman, know that you are made and cherished by God. You bear God's image. You carry his calling. Be courageous. Be energized in the use of the gifts God's given you. And be at peace in the fact that God's grace accepts you apart from anything our culture tells you you have to be or do or look like. And together, let's show the world that's still broken by gender what a community looks like when men and women serve, befriend, challenge, and cherish one another in the name of Jesus. Let's do that together. Can we do that? Wouldn't that be awesome? Pray with me. Lord, I thank you so much that the Bible rightly understood affirms the fact that in Christ there is neither male nor female. There is equality. There is equal dignity that men and women alike are created in your image. 
And God, I recognize that we have distinct roles in the church and in the home, and, and that's important, and that's not what we've talked about this morning. What we've talked about this morning is the fact that we are equal in your eyes and that you've gifted us in so many different ways, and we can use those gifts in the church and in the world. And when we rightly understand some of these confusing passages that they're speaking to a particular culture or these terms like headship and what that means or, or being a helper, when we clarify those things, all of a sudden it becomes very clear and the misunderstandings that we have held for years dispelled by the truth of your word. So God, I pray that this morning we would take the message that we've heard, the truth of your word, and apply it to our lives that we as men would champion women all around us. And as women, that you would just understand that you were loved by God, cherished by God, and equal in gifting to men, and that you would go out and make a difference in this world. So God, thank you for the truths of your word. And I pray that we would apply them in the way we think and the way we live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.